back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Welcome to the MVP cast from me, Mark Woods. Thank you so much for listening in. As always, if you like the podcast, please do hit the subscribe button on your preferred podcast provider, then you won't miss a single episode. And if you can spare a few seconds extra, then do leave us a review, preferably a nice one, or share us on and help us spread the word. Now, I think this is episode 103 of the MVP cast, and my guest this time is someone who I've wanted on since the very, very outset. He was quite the player in his day as an England international, but now... 25 years later, he's become the first head coach this season to preside over a thousand BBL games from the sidelines. And as we approach the playoffs, he's plotting another tilt at a trophy before the end of the campaign at the helm of the Plymouth Raiders. Paul James, welcome to the MVP cast. No, thanks for having me on. Um, we'll just start on that one point, thousand games. How, how, I know you weren't kind of aware of the number until too far in advance. I mean, how does, how does that significance grab you? Well, just 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 thinking about that achievement now is it's just amazing because um, you know when you get into coaching, you know, you don't know how long you're gonna be how long you're gonna be around. Obviously, you need some success, but it's it's not just about the games. It's all it's just about the the preparation, the recruitment, the the miles of traveling you do up and down the motorway. And it's a it's it's a tough gig, you know. It's a really tough gig. So so you, you know you win games, everybody loves you. You lose games, and you, you're on your own. Um, so, you know, you, I think to have done that, you know, you've got to show some sort of mental and, and physical toughness. And, um, you know, I'm very proud of the achievement. Uh, I've had some wonderful teams o- over the years and uh, still love, love doing my job. Do you think, is there, is there one thing, because there's been lots of British coaches have come through and so many of them regrettably have lasted one season, two seasons, and we've never seen them in the coaching game again. Is there one thing you can pinpoint? You can talk yourself up here if you like. It's enabled you to survive and flourish and and build this incredibly long career when others haven't. Well, I think, you know, I I think I'm I'm very much a people person. I think I can relate to people on different levels, um, regardless of that situation. Um, And I've been able to spot good situations um, and and, and get on with people. Uh, I'm not the kind of guy to sort of cut my nose off to spite my face, so to speak. And, um, I've just, for whatever reason, I found myself in great situations. Whether I've been, whether it was Thames Valley, whether it was Guildford, going to Worcester, there, there, there were clubs where I've been able to have good relationships with with the owners and the bosses, um, and be able to have some longevity with them. And and of course, you know, when you're winning, that 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 always helps and, and buys you a little bit of time. I mean, you come into this obviously after quite a playing career, and you know, I, don't, I don't want to like date you too much, but you know, people start to forget this in the fading in the in the, the depths of time that you know, you were a terrific player in your day. You had twenty two caps for England, you know, and, and lots of trophies on the way. I mean, you you're growing up in Leicester, you two older brothers, you know, twin brothers Eddie, Eddie and John, who you know, went on to to coach Leicester Riders for for a period of time. But you know, how much how much was the family atmosphere surrounded about basketball, or where did this germ hit? The James clan. Well, it's just amazing, actually, because um, when I was growing up, we all played on the same basketball team um, called Manulife, and uh, includes my little brother, Sean James, and uh, Kevin Routledge played on that team as well. And, you know, that that was kind of phenomenal. So it was kind of in, in the blood a little bit. They, they went on to coach. And, 
you know, I remember the first time I actually picked up a basketball, my first game, really, and, and they threw me a pair of their Rookinor basketball boots, which were two sizes too big for me. I was wearing about four pairs of socks, and, you know, it's it's kind of a, a crazy time, but I really remember that time very, very vividly. And um, I don't know, it's just one, I just enjoyed playing sport. I, I, I loved it, and um, it kind of just snowballed from there. And, you know, back then... I didn't realize that you could really earn a living by doing this stuff, playing something you, you love playing anyway. Um, but when that came around, it was like something that I really bought into and started to sort of uh, hone my skills in. This is a, a thread of the story I've never heard before. What, how good a player was the current Riders owner, power broker in the BBL, Kevin Reinlich? He was good. He he was he was good. Sort of a small forward, small forward, um, shoot the hell out of the ball. Great defense play. I mean, just very very knowledgeable about the game. Um, you know, loved playing with him. You know, also played with Carl Olsen from Leicester, who was an England international at the time. So he he was my school teacher, um, and and sort of the first person who sort of you know got got me involved in at a school level. And I just, I just had some really wonderful people around me who actually knew the game. Um, and in fact, at, at Moat Boys School, we, we had international rugby player, we had an international athlete. So actually, whatever sport you want to get into, you, you know, you, you had somebody there who could take you to the next level. But mine was basketball. And uh, yeah, and, and here we are now. How influential were the elder brothers? Because they, you know, they blazed the trail to which you followed. Yeah, they. I mean, they were very influential. I mean, they, I mean, they they used to play all the time, and I kind of just just tagged along, really. Um, and you know, at school kind of we uh, started getting a bit more serious. But we all used to play football as well together. Um, but the basketball kind of kind of took over, and I think the more success I started to have, the more they started to watch. My father came to every game um, at, at Leicester when and he was around. Um, at Leicester, we played for you know the, the junior team. Carl Brown was it was involved as well. So Carl Brown, we were the, the deadly duo, really, and uh, just just sort of uh, you know really tearing tearing up people sort of um, as we were playing at our younger ages. But I think I think the moment was when I got off the contract and speaking to my brothers about, and they were like, "Well, take it with two hands and stand with two hands." They've obviously seen something in you, um, you know. You're gonna have a a good career. You just need to listen and learn and, and do what the coach wants you. And you know who knows how far you can take it. And that's kind of uh, those things kind of stuck with me. Really, is that you know no matter what coach you have, um, how you feel about that coach, whether you think they're doing right or wrong, just do what the coach asks you and just do it to the best of your ability. And and you can be a survivor. Describe the setup of of the league at that point coming into it as a young player because you know it was it was it was coming into that era of you know the bigger money and and, and the sort of exponential growth of the game for a period of time but you know as a as a young player coming into what was a professional setup of sorts you know, what was it like back then it, it it was amazing really because say playing at Leicester we played at the Granby Halls and we would get 2500 people every game in regardless of who we're playing, so that was that was fantastic. But then you had teams like um, Crystal Palace, you know, you you, you know, Alton Bird playing, you know, um, unless we had Lonnie Leggett, Marty Head, you know, and you had some fantastic players, Man Manchester Giants, yeah, um, and and you kind of go on from 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 that, you know, Birmingham Bullets, you know, Nigel Lloyd playing, Tony Dorsey. It was an amazing time. That I mean, the talent was was just un unreal. You know, Joel Moore playing for the London team. And 
I, you know, I was just a young kid, you know, I was just a young kid just kind of getting into it and, you know, just, just watching these guys and, and, and the quality of them and just really trying to get as much and, and, and feed off them as much as well as I possibly could, really, to, just to just to stay around and be around. And, uh, you know, your Peter Scansbury's of the world and, and, your, and your Michael Hales, I mean, it's just the, the talent was unbelievable throughout. And I was kind of just initially just sitting back watching them and just trying to get to where they were. I mean, the ongoing theme and it will be from probably for time immemorial in the domestic game is this new concept of young domestic talent getting opportunities when you also have a fair hefty amount of Americans principally coming into the league. Does it feel like it was better then in terms of the opportunities afforded to British players or does it feel like it's, it's better now or are we comparing apples and oranges? Probably comparing apples and oranges a little bit, but um, I'm, I'm biased towards it because I think back then, um, I think we only had three, there's only allowed three Americans in the league. So there was more um, spots for British players. And, and also back then, the, the better British players, the international players and the England players were all playing in this league as well. So I, I feel the standard was, was, was very high, very, very competitive. You know, you still had those England, England internationals competing against the Americans. Um, and it was just it was just a time where your homegrown players they didn't want to go anywhere you know they they were getting it done here and they were getting paid accordingly and uh, that that certainly helped in keeping in keeping a lot of those players around and the, the talent was 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 huge um so in my opinion back then it was probably on a better level than we are right now i mean we talk so much i mean it's been such a topical subject you know, all season long as it should have been talking about you know, racial justice and social justice and you're you're growing up in a city like Leicester as a young black Englishman and we kind of I suppose with rose tinted glasses have always pictured the basketball court as a, as a certain haven of equality but it come back in reality was there a quality there for you or did you were you I guess feeling the same kind of things that a lot of people in the black community felt at that time in which you know, it's not quite a level playing field? Um, I mean, I can honestly say that I don't, I don't feel that that was the case. I certainly didn't feel it as well. Um, you know, I'm family, big family, one of five boys. And, you know, you got the, the James Mafia, if you like, although not being a Mafia. But, you know, we were... We were well known for, for, what, for what we did and, you know, in and around our community. Um, we had a lot of friends um, and... I really don't feel that there was um, any any sort of uh, inequality from from my perspective, and, and whether my brothers had that, I don't I don't really know. But me, but me personally, um, I don't really feel that 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 was a, that was the case for me at the time. But you know, I guess sometimes it's how you brought up, where you brought up, you know, how you respect other people, and um, regardless, um, and and I feel that all of us boys we've you know, we've never got into any sort of trouble with, with anything at all. Um, you know, maybe we were just uh, very clever with it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but no, we, you know, we, we just came from a very, very loving family and we were taught to sort of treat people as you would expect to be treated and, and say, I don't feel that I've, I've been discriminated in any way, shape or form really during that time. On the basketball floor, though, I mean, it's surprising when you kind of stand back from it. And I suppose it goes slightly in parallel with you look at some situations in the States, there hasn't been too many 
black coaches in the BBL would have stuck. I mean, Pedro Scantlebury had a good run, but Sheffield, but then left and has never come back again. You know, and I'm specifically really talking about British coaches here. Is, is there anything from your point of view you think that, that has caused that, why we haven't seen so many of those of your contemporaries that maybe nibbled at the coaching ranks but never came through? Um, I mean, I think I was very fortunate. I think I was very fortunate to get the, the, the Thames Valley Tigers head coach's job in the first place. It's, it's the first time they, they had a, a head coach. And Mickey Betts was, was there before me, but he was a part-time coach. I was his assistant. Um, and it just happened the year before. I'd, I was kind of retiring anyway, and I coached the, our Thames Valley second team in Division Two of the National League. And we came third, and then we won the, the, the playoffs championship that year. And, and then the advert was put out for a head coach of Thames Valley. So, you know, of course, showing willing, a young young man coaching. I enjoyed coaching those young 16, 17, 18-year-old kids. That was great fun. Um, so, but to show willing, you know, I applied for the job. And, you know, <laughs> surprising to me, I, I got the job. And then it was like, oh, my, what, what am I going to do now? Because I had no experience of recruiting players at all. At all. I, I knew nobody. I know, didn't really know any agents or anything. And, and actually, the, the team now that I'm coaching, half of them were, were guys who I played with the year before. And I'm now deciding their salaries and what I can give them, what I can't give them and stuff. So it's kind of one of those sink or swim you know, situations. And, um, you know, it's an opportunity, right? And I think those opportunities don't come along every day. And there's an opportunity that actually, if you don't take it, you never know. Uh, and so I just had to take it and run with it and hopefully... You know, I could, I could, uh, you know, do do something with it, but never had I thought I'd be coaching sort of twenty three, twenty four years later. Uh, once I started there, but I've had really good fortune. I say I've been with some good clubs, had some good teams, uh, been able to recruit really well, um, uh, and again having success at, at every club I've been at um, certainly helps with the, you know, the continuity of coaching at teams. I mean, one of the things that people always talk about with you as far as good a recruiter that you are. I mean, even foremost, you know, probably above even specific coaching abilities. But, you know, it is quite a skill. And you know, when you're throwing in at the deep end with the Tigers, how do you learn that from scratch? <laughs> well, you know, I, I spoke to the, the late Kevin Cadle. That was the first person I called, to be honest, and bless his soul. And, uh, you know, he gave me a few words of wisdom uh, just about the, the players that I had who were my teammates and the players that I was going to bring going to, to bring in. Um, and really, it's about... Back then, it's difficult because it's not like you can... Like now, you can... Everything's online. You can you can research players to the hills and you can call them and you can be in touch with them over the social media. And stuff. back then, you're talking about the old VHS, VHS <laughs> you know, videos and you're waiting for a video to come from the States for, for two weeks and goodness knows whatever. Um, so it was difficult. So I relied on people who um, I'd, I'd got to know really well during, during my time playing. So I say Kevin Cadle was the first person to call. Dan Davis, you know, um, I called him up and begged him. I'm like, look, you need to help me here with, with some players. He'd just become an agent. Um, and actually, John McCord came from Dan Davis. Uh, so I, I watched his tape for literally five minutes. So um, it's not like I do my... Like like I do now, where I mean, you do so much research on players now; it's unbelievable. But back then, literally, it's like I saw John McCall five, and I thought this guy will do. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and it worked out okay. Yeah, I, I went. I remember going to John Nike um, on a, on a Saturday morning and um, saying, "I've found this player. Um, he's a rookie, but I want to pay him this." And he's like, "What? We've never paid a rookie that." 
but he said, you know what, coach, you are the coach, you know, do what you got to do, but on your head be it, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but we were fortunate enough, fortunate enough to, to, to win something that year. And, and John McCall was probably one of the best signings I've ever made, to, uh, to be honest. And he was my, my very first one. How, you know, obviously the, you've, the recruitment process for things, you, using things like Synergy or you know, even, even YouTube, I suppose, to an extent, is, is a big help. But how else would you say or where's the biggest areas where the way that you go about the process of coaching has changed in the last 25 years? I mean, it's different now because, say, you, you know, you, you want to build a team that, that are going to have some sort of uh, synergy and chemistry with each other, and that's very hard to know until you get them here. So, um, for, for for me, um, a lot of it, a lot of it was was word of mouth and recommendation, and, and trying to talk to players and, and trying to get inside their their heads with what they're doing. More so now, uh, and, and I've got the most amazing assistant coach in Danny McGee. And uh, if I want to find out about a player, I mean, I go to him and he comes back with reams and reams and reams of stats. So why we should get this player or why we shouldn't get this player? And, and he'll make a case. Um, and so a lot of it for me now, he's an academic, right? So <laughs> if I can't do it myself, I go and send it to him and he'll go and find out the information. So we're almost like a perfect combination now with, with what we're doing because uh, I, say, I, I cannot speak highly enough about the work he is putting in as far as how we recruit players now. Um, and he'll grab all the information we need, we'll go through it. I will then literally speak to the agents. I'll have several conversations with the player um, just to get a feel for them and tell them what we're trying to do. And, and, and hopefully, once you start putting all that stuff together, um, hopefully you've, um, you know, you, you put together something that's, that's going to work. And it certainly happened this year. We spent a lot of time, because we had a lot of time with COVID and the, the, the league shutting down early last year. We had a lot of time and we went through copious amounts of players to get to this point. Um, and uh, I, I feel we've done a pretty good job with, with it. What's the balance in in that recruitment process for you now? It's probably you know shifted over the years, but between really digging into the data, so you I mean you can you can learn so much now with you know, very small pieces of data that tell you you know about you know efficiency and yeah. the way that players go about, and even some of the you know the, the advanced scouting, but also those last few conversations on the phone, possibly even with their coach, but you know mainly with the player as well that you you get the personality side and the insights. I mean, where does, where do those two ends of the spectrum sit against one another? Um, I think the stat, the stat side is, is there and it's very, you know, obviously very informative, you know, points per possession, all that. So I think that's really good. But for me, I think more so it's a feel for the player. I think I've always had a, a good feel for individuals um, when I've spoken to them at length and we've had long conversations and actually whether a player can actually converse back with you or, or not, or whether, you know, you're not getting much out of them. You have to prize stuff out of them. Um, and so I've, I've always been one that for about getting a good feel about the personality of, of the player and, and what they've done, actually doing research about, you know, how, um, how, whether they're coachable or not, what, what kind of player they are, what, where they think they are best suited to play and, and, and so on and so forth. So, yes, the stats are there. 
without question, and, and they they stack up. Now, is that player on a winning team? He's on a losing team. How many shots has he taken to get those amount of points? And so we take all that into consideration. But I think the bottom line and the, the, the final decision with me is about how do I feel about that player and his personality and how will he fit into this, uh, the chemistry of the team I want to create. You know, are they prepared? They might have been a great player on their team they've come from, but are they prepared to sacrifice and, and play the way we want to play as a team for us to be successful? So I, I think a lot of it is just getting a feel um, for the player after I've collected all the, the, the data I need or Danny's giving me all the data I need um, to actually then go and speak to the guy. <clears throat> Someone who's always been a player's coach, you know, how, how is that balance struck for you between letting players have a voice of kind? <clears throat> But also, you going, I'm the boss here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens even now. And I do want the players to, I want them to figure things out themselves. I want them to, you know, I'm not a coach who's, I'm barking orders all the time from the sideline. And you see a lot of coaches do this. And I, for me, when I was playing, it was just enough already. You know, I don't, I don't need to, I know what I'm trying to do. I know what we want. We've, we've prepared really well during the week. Just, just let us get on with it now and let us find our way. And I'm very much that way. I want the players, they're going to make mistakes, okay? But they've got to make the right mistakes, but don't make those mistakes twice. So I want the players to have a feel for the game. I want them to, to work things out themselves if they have to, within a, within a given structure that they've been given. Um, and so I, I don't want to influence, I, don't, I say I don't want to be one, the one who's barking orders all the time, constantly. Just at the end of the day, they'll, they'll switch off about things. Um, so I, gi I give them a lot of um, autonomy of the team and what we do and we'll question and we'll ask well, how do you want to play this how do you want to play I feel we should play it this way or we feel we, should, we want to play this how do you guys feel like do you think you can, can, you, you can cope with that um, and then you know if we're not agreeing I will then say well this is the way we're going to do it and, and that's it but I want buy-in from the players if we don't have buy-in from the players we're not going to get anywhere uh, and I think we've been very good we've been very good at sort of with the players we've had, um, putting in systems that, that makes the most of their abilities. Uh, and, and I think that, again, that's very important. We, we run plays for, for every player. Every player's got their own play where, they're gonna, where they know they're going to get their look. So I want to play unselfish basketball and I wanted to be able to share the ball and uh, not be like it was basically when I was playing, you know, in some teams where um, you had your Americans, they did all the scoring, didn't matter your English or whatever you can score is like you rebound the ball, your American is your first, second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth look and then if the clock, shot clock's running down you might be able to shoot it. So I, I don't want to be that kind of that guy. Uh, I want it to be all encompassing where everybody is a scorer, everybody plays defence um, but we're going to do it in a certain way. There was a quote you had when you, you, you were on the podcast of our good friend Tony Gorgolotto and you said that one of the differences, I don't know if it's a difference but you know, one of the evolutions now is now I do more teaching than coaching. Expand on that. Yeah, <laughs> not not this season, not this season, but in <laughs> in, in in the previous seasons, um, I, I just think that the talent that's been coming through hasn't been great, um, and you're having to, you know, teach big men how to to roll properly and to to see the ball and not turn their back on the ball. You know, I don't, I, I think the guards, I think guards and forwards, they don't know how to pass into the post anymore. It's, it's, it's you know, we've, we've lost our way a little bit and just doing the basics really well. So I found over the last few years, this year being an exception, where we're doing more teaching of, of basic skills and basic fundamentals of the game. 
was this year with the quality of player we have, we're doing more coaching now. We can really dig into the uh, uh, the, the analysis of the game and and, and tactics and 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 how we're going to take this team out of their rhythm and how we're going to tweak things differently. You know, so we're doing more coaching to get the best out of the team to get that one two percent extra out of the team. And I think we've done that great this year. I haven't been able to do that for the last three or four seasons. You know, because we have had to do a lot of teaching um, in, in defensive rotation, xing out those 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 sort of things, hedging on screens. Guys then who were coming through didn't know how to do it, and as especially the Americans we've had didn't know how to do it. So it was a frustration. It was a real frustration. But you know, this year um, we got to a point now where we we can just coach, and it's been great. Does that skills deficit? I mean, you, you said Americans, but does that apply? as much to British players coming back from America or British players coming through British clubs that make it up into the BBL? I mean, is that a universal thing or is it, you know, where does, where does that come from? I think it's a universal thing. And, and, and I apologize for saying Americans because it's not just Americans, but, you know, America is, is the heart of basketball, right, supposedly. And, and that's the best basketball in the world and you expect them to be doing things properly. So when you Americans come over and you're having to, you're just like, wow, okay, we need to now go back. We need to pair it back. We need to teach this stuff. Um, it's it's time-consuming, and we don't have time. You know, we don't have time. But I think it's the same also for British players coming through. Um, you know, guys who've done very well at Division One who've stepped up to the BBL haven't been as successful, you know. And, you know, I look at players even now in the league who have come from Division One. They've had really, they've, they've been killing Division One. They've come up and they haven't. They've had their moments, but consistently, but consistently they, they, they haven't done it. And actually, they're quite easy to then take out of what they do because they only do one or two things well. And then once you take that away, they have nothing else to, to, to give to you. So, um, and I see that even now this, this season. I mean, many of those players reach the professional level, even at the BBL level. I mean, they've been topped up their whole lives and you know especially the ones that have gone through the AAU system in the states then going on to college etc I mean you're told that you're great and you're brilliant and you're the best thing since sliced bread and then you have to as a coach be critical and you know be and break them perhaps break them down sometimes to build them back up again I mean is, is there a genuine skill in being able to manage people in that way that you don't break them for good I, th- I think so. I think so. And I think, I'm, and I'm fingers crossed, hopefully, I've, I've, I've been able to improve players' performances that have been with me and, and they've gone on to hopefully bigger and better things once they've, once they've left. But it is, it is definitely a skill because, say, if they've been built to be this person and they've come in, and playing professional basketball is very different than, than being in the States, playing college ball, because, you know, over there, you're, bit, you're, you're told what to do, when to do it, when to eat, when to sleep, blah, blah, blah. You now come and you're a professional and you're an adult, you're a grown man, you're, you're, you're given money to play and you're given your accommodation, you're given a car and feed yourself and all that sort of stuff. It, it's, it's huge. So it's not even just about being on the court, it's about just life skills of being able to cook for yourself or, or eat right prior to training or after training. And the stuff we're having to do now with, with nutrition and all that sort of stuff to, to teach these guys how to, be a, 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 how to perform better or how to be in a, in, in a position to be able to perform better is is kind of mind-numbing sometimes with, with what we're having to do. Um, so I think there's it's not just about the basketball. It's, 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 it's 
developing a rounded player for life. Um, and certainly something I've tried to do over the years, and, and we, we, we continue to improve and strive to make these people, to make these players better people, both uh, on and off the floor, and, and just give them some life skills that they, they, they should be living by. Is that something, you know, you're sort of the BBL of trying to be more, sort of build a support system in a better way for, for players. What do you think the main things are that a player needs? I mean, you've been on both sides of the camp. What better ways could can we support players in that day-to-day basis? Well, I mean, I, th- I think back in the day, they, they, they used to be a players' union, and I think really the players would do a good job in actually sorting that out because I'm, I'm not sure about other clubs and how other clubs do things, but there has to be some sort of, um, in my opinion, sort of um, minimum wage, I guess, mm-hmm. for players, a minimum minimum standards that, that we have to all go by, whether that's living accommodation, whether it's cars, whether it's you know, what, what they get in salary, you know, um, to support around um, medical and, 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 and how that's dealt with, that, you know, those sort of things. You know, need to be put in place, and and they need to be given opportunities to go and speak to somebody if they need to, regardless whether it's a um, a, a, a mental coach or a sports sports health coach or, or whatever. They need to be given these tools or given these resources, whereby if they're in situations where they're struggling, they they can go to this person here or they can go there and 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 have that sort of a menu, if you like, of uh, of resources that they can they can they can tap into. Um, just so that we can actually say, once we're bringing them over, we there is a duty of care. Um, I'm not sure that uh, it is as it should be everywhere. With this coaching career, I mean, you got your sh- shot with Thames Valley Tigers, the late lamented Thames Valley Tigers um, yeah. under John Knight. And that first game against head coach, it was it was a reasonably a, an opponent on the other sideline who's done quite well for himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not done too bad. Oh uh, no, I mean, I mean, Nick Nurse, I mean, he's a great guy. I mean, just uh, you know, one of the coaches I really sort of admired, you know, coming through in the way the way he did did things. And I had the opportunity of, of actually working with him with GB under twenty threes, um, two thousand and ten, something like that. Mm. And uh, you know, very, um, very forthright, very giving of, of information, which we, I mean. We, I think we bonded on that trip, which which was really nice because up until that point we kind of uh, locked horns across the across the benches, if you if you like. Um, no, but that game was amazing. I, I think they were sponsored by the Cook Group at, at the time. Mm. They they had an, an amazing team, a really amazing team. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we were playing in Manchester in front of I think it was nearly eleven thousand people, um, maybe eleven thousand and three. The three being the three Thames Valley supporters that came up. And, um, you know, it was like, wow, here we are. <laughs> Let's see what we can do here. So, But we, we played an un- unbelievable game, an unbelievably amazing game. Um, I think it was Tony Holly who, who, who won the game on, on, the, on the buzzy buzzer. And it's kind of, wow, well, we've arrived and this ain't half bad. And, uh, yeah, I might enjoy this. Um, but it was, it, was, it was kind of surreal, I guess, just walking in and, and seeing this facility just, just packed with people. Uh, my first head coach job, going up against Nick Nurse, who'd, who'd already done very well anyway um, in, in his coaching career. And um, yeah, it was, it was just an amazing day. When you look at him and you look at Chris Finch, 
obviously now at the, the Timberwolves as head coach. I mean, you must have part and go, what did I do wrong not to get an NBA head coaching gig? Um, no, I, I don't think that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's one. I don't begrudge them that at all. I mean, I've always, I've enjoyed coaching in this country for sure. Um, I think every club I've been at has been, is there've been some challenges and I've just been, you know, um, happy with what, with, with my lot. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm coaching in the country of my birth, um, and at, at the top level and, and, and I'm loving doing it and they're now doing it you know, themselves in, in, the, in the States and Canada. So, you know, they, they were always going to be doing something like that at a high level. You know, I had some opportunities to, you know, potentially look at going um, and coaching in Europe, um, especially after my, my uh, Guildford Heat days. Um, but then the job came up at Worcester for, for half a season back in 2009. So I thought I'll just do that and, and see where we go from there. Um, yeah, and, and you know, the clubs I've been at, I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed the people I've worked with. Um, say we've had some success. And, uh, you know, if I had my time again, I wouldn't change a thing, to be honest. I, I'm, I'm really pleased with the career I've had coaching in this country at the top level. Nick, when he was on the podcast, you know, talked about being in the room essentially when Manchester Giants version 1.0 imploded when the owners pulled out. I mean, you were there when, when John Nike decided that you know the tigers were to to meet their meet their end i mean describe what what was going on there at the the last few days of of, of the what you know, proved to be the tigers existence well, i think it's difficult because i think john and i had supported the club for um nearly 20 years um going on 21 years i think um and and tried to do some things in bracknell you know i know when i first went down there to interview as a player you know I was showing plans of arena that he wanted to build on on the land he had, and he could he could never get that. So I think it just got to a point where he just thought, well, I, I've taken it as far as I can go. They won't let me have the arena. They won't let me build an arena. So um, I'm done. I'm out. He, he already had his ice rink and, and the Bracknell Bees, so that was fine. They had their own home, um, but to then make some money, he needed to have his own facility, which teams are now starting to realise, um, and he uh, just couldn't get that through. So. I think he just felt I put enough money in, however many millions, um, and and that was that. So it was a real, um, it was a sad time because I was with them for seventeen years, <laughs> you know, as as player and then head head coach, head coach. It was a sad time, but I understood. I, I understood what he was saying and where he was coming from, um, and such was the support and the people who were passionate about basketball. We managed to get a, a group of five people together who thought, let's let's try and keep this going. Let's see if we can keep it going but let's move out of Bracknell where could we go um, used to be a team in Guildford way back who then became Bracknell actually Bracknell Pirates so let's see if we can go back to Guildford see if they'd have us there and, and, and they would and yeah we um, we, we managed to uh, sort of resurrect the team albeit under a, a different name Guildford, Guildford Heat and uh, you know had four or five very very successful years there what was your role in in making that happen and in, in sort of building a, lighting the the sort of flame from the embers of the tigers? Well, I was there as, as the head coach, so I think it, it was they they you know the the five the group of five. There's someone there who was going to take on the chairmanship. We had someone there who was, who was, who was an accountant. Um, you know, we had a couple of business people there on, on board so who all loved the sport. So we all had our kind of roles and I guess my role was, was still the same to 
to, to, to coach the team, but also to be general manager of the club at, at the same time, um, looking at sponsorship and all that sort of stuff. So it's actually another interesting time for me because it wasn't just coaching. It was trying to do the community stuff. It was trying to bring in sponsorship um, and, and working with these other people who interested parties who just love the sport and want to keep it going. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's kind of added another uh, string to my bow, really, in, 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 in that regard and just how it all worked even more so behind the scenes and not just 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 coaching the team but um it was a, a phenomenal time for us i mean we, we won everything there was to win um in in those four or five years you know managed to play in the, in the uleb cup as well um which was probably a, a step too far for <laughs> us <laughs> a bit of a challenge but um an amazing amazing um time that 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 was during during that chapter of my sort of career in basketball I want to come back to the ULEB excursion in a moment, but I mean that League and Cup team that won the double, you know, in in two thousand and seven. I mean that that was such a phenomenal group, and you know, in terms of success, I also go back then to nineteen ninety eight, which is probably my favourite team of yours. When you know, looking back at the the match report from the what was called in those days the Sainsbury's Classic Cooler National Cup final. Um, okay. You know, guys like you, Casey Arena, John McCordy, you've already mentioned Tony Tony Holly, you've already mentioned Jason Seaman as well. Was terrific. Um. It's hard to compare and contrast. It's like asking who's your favourite child. But what, what do you regard as your greatest team? Oh my goodness! Oh, I. That was a great team, but I can't. I don't know if they were. That was the greatest team. We had a lot of fun for sure. Um, I, I can't answer that one. I've had so. I've really had so many great teams for for different reasons. The, the, the team I had at, at Worcester. Um, when we won the double in, I think it was 2013, 14, mm-hmm. when we had, um, obviously we had, uh, we had the Williams brothers. Um, we had, uh, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm now forgetting names. I am, I am now really getting, getting old. Will, <laughs> we had Will, Will Creekmore, uh, Zaya Taylor, you know, we, we, we had, a, that was a, that was an interesting team to coach, but I just knew that once they, stepped on the floor they were just going to get the job done I think we, we beat Newcastle in the playoffs um, final that year at Wembley the last game at Wembley that was phenomenal we won the trophy you know and again it was Worcester's first trophies as well that they've ever had so that was that was a very special team as well um, but I, I cannot pick a team because I, I have so many fond memories of, of all of them um, all of the teams all the winning teams I've had I've had so many fond memories um the ULEB Cup, in which for, for those who got confused by the continuing change in European trophies, was, was the equivalent of today's Euro Cup. But you had it, it's an incredible list of teams that you had to play. I mean, just to, you know, to name two, you know, Hoventut, Badalona, Alba, Berlin. But you guys went 0-10. And, 10, and it was the, the last time until Leicester played in, in Champions League qualifiers and in the Europe Cup a few years ago that a British team went into Europe. And by all accounts, a complete financial disaster. But from a coaching and you know, life experience point of view, what was it like to, to have those 10 games in European competition? You know, it was, it was an unbelievable experience. Um, you know, those teams you mentioned, Turk Telecom as well, Cholet, Lithuania. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, these are guys who had 
10, 12, 14 million euros for player salaries. And here we were with probably 250,000 euros <laughs> in, in salary. So, but it's something that um, one of our investors wanted to do at the time. Um, you know, he's into the hedge fund and it's, it's around that time of that, the whole market crash, which became, a, you know, a disaster for everybody, really. The experience is something I, I would really, really love to do again. It was just, it, it, it showed whether you, you, you're a good coach or not. And actually, most of the time, the tactics we had and, and the way we played was good. The difference was was the quality of players and, and their level of fitness and their, their consistency in, in scoring. They, you knew what you were getting out of them, you know. And um, where we weren't quite there, yes, we had talented players, but that consistency wasn't there. You know, uh, the fitness probably quite wasn't, wasn't there. Um, but having that experience allowed us to, to win some games in the domestic league that we probably shouldn't have won. And, and one of those games was, again, we played Newcastle and it was a trophy final in Plymouth um, that year. We were 14 down at half time, 12, 14 down at half time. And it was, it was all about this message really was clear. I'm like, guys, we, we were playing in Europe, you know, Ricky Rubier, you know, Rudy Fernandez, all these guys we've, we've played against. Yeah, you know, Min and Turk Teller come and played for the sixty games for the Bulls. Um, you know what we're doing now is just we're just letting ourselves down as far as the level we've played at, and we actually came back and 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 won that game. But it's because of the grittiness that we've had from playing in the ULEB Cup, which was was a disaster as far as we didn't win a game. It was, it, was, it was a level too high for us. We probably should have gone into the, um, I think the FIBA Cup was the one below where we'd have been, we'd have been a bit more competitive. But it was an experience all the same. And, um, you know, and an amazing experience for, for, for everybody concerned. With that, I mean, the numbers that season, I mean, put it in perspective. I mean, it, you know, we've seen, you know, British teams sort of tentatively go back into Europe, but we know that the financial burden that it imposes. I mean, how troubling for the club was it to go, go on that wonderful adventure, but then you sit back and you, you crunch the, the accounts at the end of the day and go, crikey, that maybe that wasn't such a great idea. Well, I don't think... Um, it, it was It was a case of uh, not not that it wasn't a great idea, it was like that's something that, that the person investing wanted us to do. And... If it wasn't for the, the 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 financial markets crashing, then everything would have been fine. And so, you know, you you couldn't predict that. You couldn't pre- you you couldn't predict that at all. I, I think one of the things that hampers British teams um, in Europe, and I do think um, teams do have the players and the coaches and the talent to sort of go and be competitive in Europe, but one thing that's holding us back is is the restrictions within the BBL as far as the, the salary cap now. Um, and you know you see teams such as London, you know, um, you know, with, with investors, you know, Plymouth now with the investors that they have, who who are able to go and put teams together to be competitive in Europe. Um, but I guess the league, the BBL league regulations and salaries cap or team caps doesn't allow those teams to be competitive because of the way it's structured. And I think that's a shame because I think it's keeping. Um, the level and standard of basketball back um, in the in the BBL, I think, uh, potentially um, 
it's not allowing the, the sport to grow as as much as it could do. It's not giving us that that audience in Europe so people can see that actually, wow, the VBL, they have got teams who can compete, which will then encourage other players to come and play in the VBL where at the moment, you know, it's tough. It's tough to recruit a player to the BBL because we're not playing in European competition. You know, a lot of Asians don't think it's a good league. Well, actually, it's a much better league than, than, than people do think. But I think we can do a better job in actually promoting our sport moving forward um, and, and being able to allow teams, if they're able to, to go and, you know, do what they have to do to go and play in Europe and be competitive, not just to make up numbers, but go and be competitive, win some games. And and that 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 will do the world of good for this British game um, and, and for the for the BBL because it's going to attract some people. It will attract, you know, probably other investors um, because we're getting it done on a wider stage. I mean, given that you've got the investment behind you, not know, with you know the Turkish Turkish ownership BAU group, what what percentage probability is it that the Raiders enter? at least the Europe Cup next season or the season after? I think it's uh, very high. I think it's very, I think it's very high. I mean, they're already doing it with their team in, in Turkey anyway, um, with, with Baxter College. College. Um, so I, I think the, the possibility is very high. Now, whether we're going to be able to do it and be competitive enough is, is another story. Um but certainly, they they've made it clear that they would like to to play in some sort of European competition in the next year or two. It may be next season. It may be the season after. Um, but everything has to line up to allow us to be competitive. I don't see the point in doing it if we can't be competitive. Um, and so, the owners, um, the BBL, need to look at it and see how they can help to allow. Um, clubs that do want to go into Europe and I believe London will want to go back into European competition next year um, and how we can allow those teams to, to be fruitful and successful playing in, in, in European competition because again I think it's only going to you know put a good it's only going to be a, a good thing for, for, for the BBL and the British game I mean we're not that far away from kind of the entry deadline for, for next season I mean when you you sit down and well, I was going to say in the room on Zoom or Teams or whatever it is, but with you know the, the representatives of the owners, um, you know Ross McKenzie as well from from Raiders' point of view. How do you think that decision will be reached in terms of whether you press the button for next season? <laughs> I'll be told. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'll be told basically. Um, hey, look, I think you know we. we it was a toe in the water job from this year. They they set some goals out for for me and the team and to achieve, um, and you know we've just about done that. Obviously, playoffs. You know we're gonna we're gonna finish in the top four, which is great. We got to a final. Um, we didn't do ourselves just in the final, so they can see what we need to do to improve as a as a team domestically. Um, but also, they'll know the pitfalls of playing in European competition and the level of player we'll need to get as well. So. Um, they'll sit down and look at it and um, if they think now is the time to do it then I'm, I'm sure they'll they'll look to put a you know and look to try and enter the Europe Cup and um, see what we can do with it you go back I mean flicking back I mean, to, to, to being at, at Surrey or Guildford as it was then I mean the end of, there was the end of that season you know that you were let go and it has a test to your longevity it's the only time you've actually ever been let go possibly against your own will. I'm not sure if it was the case, but um, <laughs> you were out of work 
very briefly until Wooster picked you up the next season. But you know, talk us through those few months. Was there that fear that hey, this this might be me done here? I mean, did you take another job? I mean, how did you approach the the hiatus from the sidelines? Yeah, yeah, it was it was for, yeah, it was about six months, and it's a bit um it's a bit balmy because I've never been out of work, you know, since uh, sixteen, you know, working and. And then signing my pro contract anyway, just before my 17th birthday. So I've always worked up until that point. I was like, wow, so this is what it feels like, you know? So um, it, it was, it was, um, it was, a, it was a difficult time. And I, and I applied for for several jobs, looked at some jobs. Um, uh, I applied for the job at uh, Ulm in Germany, actually, and uh, got down to the last two. And then the Worcester job came up. You know, um, and you know, kind of went and interviewed at Worcester. It was only for um, sort of four, five, four, five month contracts anyway. Um, so I thought, well, okay, until I figure out what I'm going to do, I'll, maybe I'll just take this job and, and see what I can do with it. Um, but it, it was, it was, it was a weird time being unemployed for for, for six months, and um, it's not something I'd like to be, you know, because someone's someone's forced me to be that way. Uh, I'd liked it off my own back, and and I guess at the time, Guildford just wasn't uh, was wasn't big enough for, for me and the then owner. So, but um, yeah, Guildford have done what they've done since 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 then, and um, I've moved on to bigger and better things. With with Worcester, I mean, you know, there was trophies obviously en route, and you know it's it, it's a nice setup there. I mean, you know, you've got a you know, terrific building, and you've got the university behind you. But clarify at the end of obviously you know. As I reported at the time, you know, there was the opportunity to go to Plymouth and you took it. But was that a situation where you felt you had taken it as far as you could? Or was there a sort of more deep and meaningful reason for, for going to Plymouth? Well, two, two things, really. I mean, Plymouth is a club that I've, I've really... It's a tough place to play. When I've come down and played down here or, or and coached here, it's just tough. And the fans are superb. It's always been a club that actually I think I wouldn't mind coaching here. So that was, that was one thing. Um, this, the second thing is they, they'd actually approached me um, the year before I actually moved down and uh, the year they signed Gavin um, but they approached me late in the season um, sorry late in, in, the, in the summer um, maybe three weeks before pre-season supposed to start and I wasn't then going to sort of you know pack bags and leave um, to go to Plymouth I'd recruited my team and so I stayed you know loyal to the club then Um I think the final year it just just came to the crux where it's like you know I, I wanted to sort of go in one direction. Uh, I think the the manager there wanted to go in another direction. We were kind of butting heads a little bit, you know. Um, you know, I'd done what I'd done in my career and thought I was doing what I thought was best best for the team moving forward. Um, hands hands tied a little bit, I guess. And uh, you know, the Plymouth thing came along again. I thought, yeah, it, it was. It was Again, right, right, right. Good timing for me, really, because I could have stayed. I could have stayed there and, and continued. Um, it, it wasn't much fun not being able to sort of do what you think is best uh, for the team at the time. Um, and so it was, it was the right time time to leave. And uh, again, you know, uh, I enjoyed my time immensely there at, at Worcester. I had a great time. But, you know, you get to a point where there's only so much headbutting you can do. Uh, and something has to give. And uh, uh, again, I'd, I'd want to, you know, having had the experience at at, at uh, Guildford, sorry, um, I want to do it under my own steam, basically. And uh, so, 
this opportunity in Plymouth came up. You know, Gavin was there for a year, then he he left, and so they were scratching around for for another coach, and they approached me again. And yeah, the timing was good. The time was good, and um, yeah, I, I'm glad I've made the move now. Um, I think this club's in a position to really be a top four, top two team year in year out now with with the way things are going. And um, no, it's a, it's a really exciting time, and it's kind of you know re-energised me really you know, with, with the game as to what we can do. I mean, having you know all these years of experience, we talked about you know, your strength as a recruiter. I mean, not putting words in your mouth with, with the Leicester situation, or sorry, the Worcester situation, but you know, how important is it for you as a coach to have that control over the personnel decisions and the players that you ultimately then have to coach? Um. Again, I've not lasted this long because I, I've always demanded control. Um, but, you know, and, and discussions could be had, but I want to talk to people who actually know the game and, and who, who who can make informed decisions about the game because they know the game and not because they're a, they're a fan, so to speak, or an owner or they think this this should be done in the right way or this should be done this way. That That doesn't make any sense at all. So I think... At the end of the day, you hire a coach and it should be the coach's decision. But, you know, yes, there should be discussions around what sort of team you want to put together, how you want to put it together. But with with people who have that information and knowledge about the game um, and, and not, not people who are, I don't know, facility managers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's reminisce a little bit just before we finish off. Um over 25 years who's been the toughest coaching foe for you um well we had um bob donwell jr at the start of my career i mean he, he took over he, from your brothers ironically at last yeah yeah he and he that, that first year he i mean he slated me left right and center supposedly i i i i went behind mickey's back to get that job which was which is absolute nonsense but um we had a real there was no love lost there really and um you know I, I won the battle in the end by beating them in the was either the cup or the trophy final my, my first year as a head cup coach final, yeah. so uh, yeah cup final so kind of shut him up a bit that was that was always a tough battle but you know Kevin Kayla I seem to meet Kevin Kayla every year in the playoffs that we'd, we'd, we'd made the playoffs sort of semi-finals I mean just just tough you know Rob Patton Austrian I just can't beat him for whatever reason <laughs> um, you know, but but it's all good though, you know, because I think there's there's kind of a, a coaching brotherhood there, and um, we all those those of us who have been around a while, we you know we know how we all want to play inside and out. But um, yeah, you know, Nick Nurse, Chris Finch, you know, you always had to be on your game. Um, you, you know, when you always had to you're, you're scouting well when you when you played those guys because if you didn't, uh, they they would really really hurt you. You know, Billy Mims, you know, another one. You know, these guys were just just, just so focused on what they had to do. It was um, they, they were, they were challenging, challenging coaches. But I think if there's the one of all, um, probably, probably you know, Kevin Cadle was, uh, you know, the master of all, really. I feel bad about not giving you advance warning of this particular idea, but who would be in the all PJ starting five? <laughs> you. Oh <laughs> my gosh! Wow. Um, oh my. You can go. You can go bigs and smalls rather than having to be specific at every position. Okay, John McCord for one. Yes, um, Will Creekmore because I think he was an undersized 
center who was just phenomenal at both ends of the floor. Absolutely phenomenal, relentless. Ooh. See the guards are just you see you're killing me with the guards now. You know, um Ricky's right up there with them, Ricky McGill. Um Brian Dukes is right up in, in there with them. Casey Arena. <sighs> EJ Harrison. I d I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I might put them I might just put them all in there. Can I I don't know. That's that's a question you that's a terrible question. Ask me to be honest. That's unfair. That's unfair. That's unfair. Again, if you had to relive one game, possibly just for the joy of it, you know, in terms of the experience, what is there one game that you would pick out that you would go, yeah, that that was my favourite day at the office. Um, I I think. This is the one game I would relive because it just stuck with me for forever. Would be my first, very first game, my very first game against Manchester because that was just. I don't think I've I've had that sort of buzz since. As far as just walking in there, just just terrified with what's about to happen. Having a game plan against a a, a team that was going to go go on to win the league and. and do whatever they did, and actually coming away with a, a a last second shot to win the game. That was an unbelievable moment. Don't get me wrong; all the the, the playoff finals that have won, the, the trophies and the cups have all been great. But for me, that I, that one game kind of set the tone really for for the way I was going to coach for for the rest of my career. If you had one game that you would like to banish from your memory, what would it be? Um, hmm. one game. I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, every final you lose is is a, is a disappointment. Um, you know, I, I think if I if I could relive this year's trophy final, I think we'd do things differently. I feel that the team didn't show up in that first half. It's a game that was very very winnable. It's a game I felt that we kind of. Just, just didn't handle ourselves properly um, mentally, um, and and that 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 was a big disappointment because I felt we had all the tools there to win it, and we just didn't show up. So whether I hadn't prepared the team properly, um, whether there was too much preparation around it and too much excitement, I, I don't know. But I was disappointed. I'm sure I've had many, many more disappointing games, um, but the immediate one uh, this year that that one that one really hurt. Last one thing on this, obviously, we're just about. Head in the playoff season. I mean, it's, it's been an incredibly even spread of the trophies. And you know, if if Leicester do close off on the championship title, then you guys are the ones that are sitting, waiting for that first trophy. And you, know, my my good buddy Kieran Achara, you know, has, has tipped you guys to be the, the the team that's best equipped for the playoffs. Is there a kind of, I don't know, a sort of hunger to kind of deliver something because of the investment that's gone in, because of the talent that you've got there. I mean, yes, there's been the unfortunate situation where Andrew Lawrence is probably going to miss this whole season, but, you know, there is yeah. great talent. You, do you sort of sense from the owners there that, yeah, there's a little bit of pressure on to come away with something from this season? I mean, I think they're super happy with what we've achieved so far, but obviously there's another... There's a there's another piece of silverware there to be won, and and we want to try and win it. Um, and you're right. I mean, I, I think we've we've coped immensely well this season with the ups and downs that we've had. You know, Andrew Lawrence 
you know, we've put a, built a team around Andrew Lawrence who doesn't play for the whole season. We've had to cope with that. Ricky McGill coming in late, Prince missing so many games. Um, you know, we've had injuries left right, so we've still managed to cope and, and overcome that. Um, and, and, I, and I truly believe had we had a fit Andrew Lawrence, we'd be winning the league, we, we would have won the trophy. And I, I, tr- I truly believe that. So that that's unfortunate. That, that's unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I, I I think we I think we've got a really good opportunity here um, to, to push on. I think the team are playing in, in great rhythm. We, we've we've overcome many many hurdles this this season, um, and we are keen as as players as well as the owners to try and push on and see how how high we can finish the league and how far we can go in in, in the playoffs. Um, we've had we've had a great year and and with investment comes more pressure it comes a, there, there comes a different type of pressure um, and I feel to this point we have rewarded them um, the owners to a certain point um, but we're not satisfied yet and we think you know we can have a good run in the playoffs and potentially get to the final and win it there would be something special about winning a final back in your home time <laughs> yeah yeah there's that too there's that there, there is there is that too that 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 would be Immense, and and just with the year we've had, really, you know, reaching a thousand games coached, um, the new investment and and the way the club's going, it it would be an unbelievable dream, really, to to sort of get to a playoff final and 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 win it in in my hometown. So, so maybe the stars are aligning. You know, there's the perfect ending to the script for the season. So, for the Paul James story of thousand years, thousand games. Feels like a thousand years since she started. Feels like a thousand years since we both started in this league. But there you go. Yeah. Um, Paul, it's always a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Good luck in the playoffs. And uh, here's to the next. Well, I don't know if it'd be a thousand games, but 7,500. Yeah. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Pleasure. Thanks, Paul. That's it for this edition of the MVP Cast. You can get all our previous editions at MVP247.com. We can also sign up for the post up, our regular newsletter. Or if you want to get in touch, reach out via Twitter to me at Mark Brittle. Another edition of the MVP cast coming very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, thank you so much for listening and it's goodbye for now. <laughs>